Let us pray. Jesus, we just thank you for this day and just thank you for how you continue to show up in our lives, God, even on days when we don't bring much to you, Lord. I'm just thank, thankful for the way that you are providing healing in our church. We just thank you for um, putting your hands on pad and for bringing Paul home safely, God. And just thank you for the wonder that you're bringing into the lives of our, of our children and we get to just watch it build and grow, God, and just hope that um, that you would just give us the words, God, as our kids are asking questions, as our neighbors are asking questions, um, that you would just speak through us, God, just give us the words um, to help others to grow into their faith. We just pray over our service today, we just pray over Joseph, God, and that um, he could just present whatever it is that we need to hear today, in your name, amen. So one of the things that it seems like a lot of, uh, <clears throat> especially a lot of modern churches like to really dig into, um, they, they like to kind of focus on the attractive parts of Christianity, you know? So when you look at the state of the church today, um, it's one of the reasons why I'm so cynical about kind of the state of the church. Um, you know, it seems like you kind of have one form of church that is sunsetting. You know, and that's kind of like the <clears throat> traditional, I say traditional, the church has really existed for a hundred-ish years, you know, kind of the the traditional, this is my community church that my family's always been a part of. Because the reality is most of the time those churches, when you look at how old they are, they're somewhere between 100 and 150 years-ish old, those traditions. So when people say my family's always gone here, what they mean is like three generations have gone there. Um so, which I mean, I'm not uh, sneezing at that, you know, but it, it, it's something where my point is, it's not a thousand years old, you know, it's not, it's not something that can't go away. Um, so, you know, you have that and it's kind of sunsetting with the, you know, kind of collapse of the Christian culture. Um, so it's not everywhere. There's certain areas of the country that some people have argued are actually, you know, ascending and being more of a Christian culture. But um, <clears throat> yeah, that's kind of the general trend nationwide. So then you also have other churches that are growing. And a lot of these churches that are growing, if you look, are very much not the traditional church. They're very modern, a lot of contemporary stuff, and they definitely try to appeal to a different type of group of people. Um, and, hey, you know, if we can reach out to more people, there's something good about that, right? So, I mean, you know, got to be careful not to get into the, the conversations of like, oh, well, you know, my, my way, my way of, of doing doctrine is better than theirs, and therefore I'm going to, you know, stick my nose up at them reaching people for Christ. That's not helpful. So that being said, there is something that seems to be a little bit of a misconception that a lot of these modern churches do seem to be pushing. And a lot of it is because one of the ways that you kind of increase your, you know, that you increase your pull is you focus on the attractive aspects of the faith. You focus on things like forgiveness, things like grace, things like love and compassion, things that <clears throat> in many ways in different areas of society maybe people aren't seeing at other places so they come to the church and that's all well and good unless what you're doing is kind of deliberately showing a certain face of your faith to people that you think is attractive to get them in because what that means is that then their faith is only as deep as whatever those emotions are that they're getting from that church and the second they get those from some, somewhere else or the second that they stop getting those warm fuzzy feelings from that particular church they're going to wander off and with that at worst what's going to happen is as they walk away from the church 
they will also walk away from God because they never actually developed a firm understanding that their God is bigger than their institution. So this is kind of one of those messages where, you know, I feel like sometimes they end up kind of radically bouncing back and forth between sometimes seeming like I am, uh, you know, very much like, you know, uh, uh, kind of criticizing the traditional uh, American church, you know, on, on one end. And, and I, 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 you know, if you're a politically aligned person, you may listen and go like, well, you sound like you're a flaming lib. And then on the other hand, like, you know, I, I have these moments where I kind of look at the modern contemporary evangelical church and I go, well, no, I feel like they're kind of going, going wrong too. And I think what, what we're, we're kind of realizing here is that, um, humans are kind of bad at trying to mimic a perfect God. And so we, we, we tend to see one thing and go, I don't like that and radically swing the pendulum over to the other direction. Um, and, and sometimes in our stubbornness, we don't stop and then, and then kind of check ourselves to say, well, well wait a minute, let's, let's not compare ourselves against a bad experience we had. Let's not compare our faith against you know, something we heard that we disagree with. Let's compare it against what the scriptures say. And in that, hopefully, instead of wildly swinging from one end to the other, you know, hopefully what we're doing is this as we correct and try to, to you know, decipher things that God is telling us that may be harder to understand um, than just kind of a little, a little quip or a little Facebook post. And what we're talking about today is kind of a good example of one of those things that can be kind of hard to wrap your minds around. And it's, and, and it's really founded in this. How many times have you been a part of a Christian organization, a church, or what have you, where the key uh, metric of whether you were doing the right thing was, was unity, was attracting people, um, was everybody being on the same page? This is something that I know I, I've seen in my own life in a, in a couple of different churches where, you know, it, it, even if everyone's doing something wrong, if everybody's doing it together in the same, that's considered success because we're all, we're all unified. And after all, doesn't Jesus want us to all be unified together? Doesn't God want us to all be on the same page? And, you know, he just wants us to love other people. You know, if, if I were to sit here and take that, you know, in a very, very progressive stance, I would say, shouldn't we be focusing on love and compassion for other people? Because after all, isn't that what Jesus was all about? Wasn't he about trying to make certain that, you know, when we see individuals who are rejected, that we bring them in and that, that we, we unify together into one body? And if that's the case, if it's really that simple, then you have to somehow square that mentality of Jesus against things that Jesus said, like in Luke 12, 49, when he says, I came to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already set ablaze, but I have a baptism to undergo and how it consumes me until it is finished. Do you think that I came here to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. So it's Christ himself looked at it and looked at the world and said, I didn't come here to unify anybody. I came here to divide things. I came here to sit here and draw very stark separations in between different groups of people. And again, this can sound like something that's so counterintuitive to what we think of when we think of kind of the warm, fuzzy, everybody linking arms and singing kumbaya and, you know, children of the world unite. Like th this is this that that's kind of the image that a lot of times we we either get 
from churches or that other people project onto churches is that we guys are supposed to be all the PC lovey kind of people, right? But in reality, you look and go, no, there, there's a sense of division here. Now, I want to make certain, and you know, we'll, we'll get in this a little bit later, but you know, this sense of division isn't like an angry division. I mean, this isn't something where it's like we're going to start fights and all that, but it is to say that we there has to be an understanding that we're not here simply to be the same as everybody else. There is something where Christ says, you need to understand that you are are going to be different. This is something that when Meredith and I started um, uh, before we had our, our, our uh, before we had Phoebe, our first first kid, um, one of the things we were talking about was, uh, you know, it, it was it was actually a really big line of, of discussion. I don't know how you guys who kind of have kids that are about you know same same generation. They're calling it Generation Alpha, by the way. I saw. Yeah, I guess we just wrapped around to the other end of the Greek alphabet. Um, I figured we'd go to like a Cyrillic alphabet or something. I don't know. Um, but the, uh, you know, I don't know if you guys kind of had this experience, but, you know, one of the things that popped up was, um, you know, do you, do you want to raise kids in this world? Like how hard is that going to be? Like it's going to be very, very difficult. And one of the comments I remember making was I think it becomes important to let your kids know as they're growing up, like just so you know, like you are different, like you're not the same as everybody else. You know, there is a difference in between how you are living and how other people are living, you know, because otherwise the whole time, you know, they're going to be seeing things that are around them in the rest of the world and all that. And they're going to be like, why don't I do that? You know, that's what little Timmy does. You know, that's what little Sally does. Like, why, why can't I also live that way? Or why don't I also think those same things? And, you know, the thing that I saw with teenagers was that as soon as they understood that it was okay to just be different um, and not in like the personality we're all unique, beautiful little butterflies way, but like in, in a, like you have a fundamentally different worldview than everybody else kind of way. All of a sudden, a lot of things clicked in their heads where they went, got it. Because otherwise what they were trying to do is they're trying to do the unity thing. They were trying to say, how do I square all the Jesus stuff with all the worldly stuff? And how do I fuse it in together? When you do that, you get some really weird theology. You know, you get some really weird theology. It starts talking about like, you know, well, well, Jesus embraced, uh, you know, uh, uh, whores and, and, and tax collectors and, and all kinds of other sinners and individuals. So we too should be embracing, you know, different lifestyles. We too should be embracing different behaviors in our society. We too should be embracing all these things. And, and that, 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 that is the kind of mentality that only comes about when you're trying to get your Jesus stuff and your world stuff and square them together into some unified picture of who you are. Not understanding that, no, 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 no. Jesus called them to be divided. He was separating them out from the things of the world, bringing them out from their sin into a better life. And this is something that we see Jesus talk about. We use this analogy, something that many of you have probably heard before, um, if not, you know, just kind of obscurely. In Matthew 25, verses 31 through 32. Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So if this is something you haven't heard before, the reason why this is important is because goats kind of do whatever they want. Like they just kind of, when you have goats, you just kind of put them out there and they just kind of do what they do, right? Um, Sheep can be herded like sheep. You know, you, you can you can do things and they'll follow, you know, other they'll follow a shepherd. Um, they'll actually do this really funny thing where they'll follow like a king sheep. That's like the, the alpha sheep. 
And if you do something like stick a staff in front of them, they'll hop over the staff. And if you remove the staff, all the ones behind the king sheep will continue hopping because they're following the king sheep, right? They'll just do whatever the king sheep wants because sheep will follow, but goats will do whatever they want. And so what Christ is doing is he's drawing this comparison and saying the thing is, is you have fundamentally these two different groups of people that must be divided. You have the world pursuing its own ends, but then you have the individuals who will follow me. So there is unity, there is peace, there is belonging, but there is belonging in the new creation that you have become. There is unity because you have taken yourself and shoved it to the side and completely forsaken who that person is and now become a fundamentally new person. And that's where the unity comes from. So it's a unity that doesn't come from bringing in different, you know, theologies and philosophies and lifestyles and all that, bringing them into collective and then saying, okay, now we're all unified because we've learned to, to accept the sense of each other. It's a matter of saying, no, 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 we're unified because we all acknowledge that we reject those things in the rest of the world and the thing which unites us is our identity in Christ, which is devoid of sin, which is devoid of lifestyle, which is devoid of temptation and all these other things. This is exactly why we see Paul write, and this is in Romans, but he, he, he writes this, this same type of thing several times. In Romans 6, verses 5 to 11, uh, for if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sins. Right there you have where he's talking about the fact that, you know, the old self is gone. It's not that we bring in the old self and unite it with everybody else. It's the old self is now gone. Since a person who has died is freed from sin. Verse 8, Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. It is that life that we have in Jesus Christ, that new life, that actually causes us to be united with other individuals who also share in the same new life. And it's so important to understand that because so often people want to take these verses, especially out of context in like Jesus-y type settings, and sit here and say, well, you know what? If you're sitting here and you're, you're saying anything that might be divisive with the rest of the world, then you're not being like Jesus and you're not being loving. And you go, that's not at all what this says. That's not in the slightest what this says. You know, you'll have people inside the church when you're looking inward, say like, well, well, you know, you're talking to people inside the church. And you're saying something that might be that might, that might be divisive, a different opinion on something. Well, we can't have that because we're supposed to be united in Christ, not understanding that Christ is not defined by the theologies that we have created. You know, you'll have people while we talk about theology that will sit here and talk about we can't even have a conversation about different theologies. Like we can't have an adult conversation where we disagree on how we think things like salvation work or how we think covenants work and all this kind of stuff. And some churches will totally flat out kick you out if you have a different theology because they're like we need to be united in Christ. Not understanding that at no point in time did Christ say, you know, when it comes to your study of the mechanics of salvation and how that works in the scope of eternity, you really need to be united on the same page. No, he's says we need to be united in Christ. And when you look at what Christ did, Christ loved and he ministered and he taught and he, he saved other individuals and he performed these miraculous acts for people. These are the things that define Christ, not our academic study of what we think that some guy said 800, 1200, 1800 years ago. So what unites us needs to be our sense of 
mission and our sense of calling and our sense of belonging, our entire identity that influences how we react to other people in situations in the world today. That's what unites us. And so what you end up having at the end of the day is this picture of division from our old life because that means that we are now divided away from our enslavement to the things that used to control us before. And now we are free to do the things that are hard, to do the things that are inconvenient. That becomes so critical because so often what Christ teaches is not easy and convenient. This is the part that I think that the, the, the modern contemporary church kind of maybe starts getting a little bit wrong. Is we want things to be uh, a little bit easier to access, you know. So it's, it's always, you know, the, the, the accessibility of the gospel. And there's a lot of goodness to that. I mean, you know, we shouldn't require, I've, I've made comments about it before, when I was talking with somebody who, you know, was really struggling with the fact that, you know, well, you know, I'm going on this mission trip and they're telling me that I got to sit here and I got to, I got to preach about Jesus Christ, but I'm, I'm not allowed to use, use scripture and just quote scripture to them and everything. How can I do that? And they couldn't fathom how, how, uh, you know, that worked, uh, and, you know, until I kind of brought up the fact to him and said, like, you know, all those disciples didn't have a Bible, right? Like after Jesus ascended into heaven and they're going around and he had the explosive growth in the church, they didn't have like this thing and go like, well, if I open up to uh, uh, crap, what am I supposed to say? Oh, good thing the words I'm going to say are already written down. You know, like they didn't have this book. So, you know, it, it's it's the kind of thing where, where you know, we it's hard. It's hard doing the, the God thing. It's hard doing the Jesus thing. And Jesus understood that it's hard pursuing a life that is that is actually truly devoted to the things that he's after. If it was just about quoting some verses or just about doing some magical uh, mission trips and service projects, it would be easy. But the reality is having a true heart that is actually being redefined by our new identity in Christ is something that becomes very difficult. And we see Jesus coming into contact with exactly this kind of mentality uh, in a story that we kind of briefly alluded to a few weeks ago. A few weeks ago, I made a comment about this uh, event that you see in John 6 where you have the feeding of the 5,000. We all know this story, I think, in general, right? A lot of people, a couple fish, some bread, and everybody got fed. Uh, so you had 5,000 people. And then after that, uh, they're on one end of kind of the sea. I say one end. It's kind of on one-third of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, you can look over, and way off in the distance, you can see like a little town. And that's, that's Capernaum. So that's where they're going is Capernaum. So <clears throat> uh, the disciples go on a boat, and then Jesus goes by another route. And so when a lot of people go like, well, I think a lot of people in their heads have this idea that like Jesus went by another route to Capernaum, and he somehow went like way out. It's The geometry is like this. So, you know, uh, <clears throat> When you look at where these events take place, you can see Capernaum, and Jesus just kind of went along the coast like this. So he took, he took the long route. And that happens, big storm on the sea. Jesus comes out, tells him about the storm. He's like, Peter, you come on out here. Peter's like, okay, that's cool. And then he goes out there, and then he's like, uh, I'm not really feeling this. And then he falls in the water, and Jesus pulls him out. And Jesus comes to see, right? So you have, uh, you get to Capernaum, and then when you get to Capernaum, you have this, this, Situation where all these 5,000 people who just got fed and could see where Jesus and the disciples were going have now followed him around. They follow him around going, I like food. So they go over there and they're listening now to the things Jesus has to say. And what's interesting is hearing how Jesus didn't necessarily look at all these people and then go, this is cool. I like having a lot of people here. Instead, Jesus took the approach of, I have to tell them truth. And that 
wasn't easy for them. They couldn't really understand this truth. So we get towards the end of the story and we see kind of the conclusion of his uh, truth that he's telling them where they ask a bunch of questions and go back and forth. <clears throat> in John 6, verse 53, it says, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds me feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? So you have to understand the people who are listening. They just got done getting fed actual food. And now Jesus is saying that in order to live forever, you have to eat my flesh and you have to drink my blood. And keep in mind, they don't have the benefit of knowing about a crucifixion. So you can understand how this would be confusing to them. And, and there is a little bit of, you know, language study in here where, you know, maybe it wasn't completely literal. But, you know, they're... That this would have been confusing to them, but not just confusing, but concerning, because a large part of what Jesus is telling them is the fact that you lived a life before. You had this life before, and you know you thought you were good because you were Jews, and you have this covenant with God, and you're you know God's precious little dumplings, and so you're going to be good. But what I'm telling you is that that is only a temporary thing. You know, God providing the, these these little bits of respite for you, talking about the manna, you know, in this situation, is is a purely a temporary thing. You have to understand that there is something that is eternal. If you really cut through what he's really alluding to here, he's talking about sacrifices is really what he's talking about. He's talking about the fact that, you know, we gave you this Mosaic law. You know, we gave you the law of Moses that talks about all the sacrifices and the rules and all that, <clears throat> which is what the reference to manna is here. He's saying, you have all these things, but you have to understand, I didn't create that mosaic law so that that would be here forever. That's a temporary fix. It's a band-aid. There needs to be the ultimate sacrifice. There needs to be the one sacrifice that is all sufficient to be able to finally put to rest the separation between the creator and his creation, and that is going to be me. So he's questioning the very fabric of what they know to be their identity is what he's doing. And saying, you have to separate yourself. You have to divide yourself from this identity that has been everything to you. To be this, this chosen people. And instead understand that you have to follow me. Your path to salvation will not be through your birthright. It will be through the blood of the Savior. <clears throat> and this is something that, you know, when you hear it, you hear it it's saying the disciples. It's not talking about the twelve. It's talking about these thousands of people that are falling at this point in time. These thousands of people are hearing this and going, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? <clears throat> and when I hear, I read this verse, it brings to mind something that I know that my, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've made comments in service before that my, my uncle, I found out when I was like in my early 20s, was a Dr. Reverend, which shattered my whole worldview of who he was. And he, he made a comment to me one time when I, I had put something online, you know, some, something that was kind of a Bible study kind of thing. And he said, you know, this is a truth that can't be made less hard, was the phrase that he used. And I've always remembered that because that 
personify so much of what it means to be a Christian, that there are certain truths that no matter how much we paste over it, no matter how much we try to word it in different ways and make it political, sometimes it's a hard truth that just simply can't be walked back. And in those moments, what we have to do is avoid that temptation of taking our Jesus and taking the world and fusing it together and somehow making it more palatable. Because sometimes there is utility in letting the hard truth be hard. Sometimes we need to divide ourselves from the rest of the world and show that we are, in fact, different. Now, I want to take a slight tangent here to just say that just because we talk about division and hard truths being hard, that's not to say that we need to be doing the, you know, hopping on the street corner, holding our Bibles up and yelling at people kind of thing. Because we also have things that we see in like James 17. I pulled, pulled one example of it uh, where James writes, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without pretense. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. And when I look at a lot of these, what you end up having is the combination of uncompromising truth with gentleness and peace. And that's a combination I feel like you don't see very often in Christians, at least in the Western world. It's, it's an uncommon thing. You know, maybe, maybe you see people who are, you know, professional clergy who kind of exhibit these behaviors. But so often it seems like you either have people who want to somehow compromise the truth, either because maybe an experience that they have or an insecurity they have, or maybe because it's just kind of it's hard when you're looking at somebody face to face to sometimes say, like, this is what truth is. Or they go the other direction where they want to sit here and, you know, uh, you know, I almost picture some, some of these people, they act like they want to be like modern day prophets. But when I say modern day prophets, I don't mean that like in a good way. I mean, like they, they talk almost like in riddles or something. And like you can't ever tell like what they're really trying to say, you know. But, you know, they, 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 it's, it's, it's your classic like overly zealous, you know, uh, G, like Jesus freak kind of Christian. And while many people will wear that Jesus freak badge as a badge of honor, there's something to that, you have to be careful to not just simply take pleasure in, in throwing and berating people with the hard truth. Because as soon as you do that, your boldness in the truth starts becoming something very sinister. It starts becoming something that's actually a tool for your own pride and your own ego and your own sense of self-righteousness rather than being what it's intended to be which is truth for truth's sake, an instrument you can use to show people that there is a life that is different from what the world is showing you. And it is better and it is beautiful and it is good, but it is different. And if you want to be a part of this, then God freely offers it. He wants you to be a part of this, but you have to understand it's a different thing. And that, that change may not have overnight. It may not be a snap decision where all of a sudden everything in the world is over to the side. Uh, you may never in the flesh totally kick everything over to the side. But in your heart, in your mind, you have to choose. Are you going to be one of the sheep or are you going to be one of the goats? And so it's that combination of the two that is so uncommon. And I think this is where we get into, you know, an important aspect of the subject of division. Christ is here to divide, but he's not here to divide in hate. 
There is a division that we desire, but it's not a division for division's own sake. It's a division because we want to push aside the things of the world that are not as good, the things of the world that are not enduring and are not everlasting. We want to push aside all of the things that society and people around us want to throw at us to say, this will make you feel whole, this will make you feel good, this will make you feel loved and belonged. And we want to take that and we want to you know, acknowledge that any pleasure we derive from this is going to be purely temporary. It's not going to fulfill us. It's not going to be the thing that at the end of the day really makes us feel like we are whole. You know, just this last week, uh, there was something where I kind of had this moment that um, <clears throat> I'm sitting here doing some stuff in uh, uh, my with, with uh, my, my Freemason Lodge. And a part of this is like, I have been a, a member of Freemasonry since I was 19, right? So and it's this weird thing where I'm this like 19-year-old college kid, uh, and the second youngest person I think was like 47 or something. So, um, but you know, I've always been a part of this great organization. It's great. They don't run. They don't run the underground government. They can't even run like an oyster bake. They don't run the government. Uh, so, um, but that being said, I've always been a part of this, and you know, I'm still in it. Got my little thing, you know, my little ring to prove it and all that. Um, but you know, I had always said that when you're doing ministry and you're taking ministry seriously, you have to decide at some point in time how important this calling really is. You have to decide if this is something you're really in on. And, you know, so as we sat here and we, I started getting involved, you know, more involved in, in youth ministry, there were things I had to push aside and, and you know, commitments I had to push aside. And then once we started planning this church, some of those obligations I had to sit here and push aside. And this last week, you know, I just sent uh, another message where I, I you know, to, to the people in, in, in my lodge, the people in charge of the lodge, and, and just said, like, look, I'm, I'm going to have to step back from a lot of this stuff, okay? Like, I'm, I'm still here. I'm still a member of the group and all that. But I'm, I'm just going to step back. Because the thing is, is that I have a mission. I have a calling, a thing that God has called me to do. And this is what is important to me. And that is an example of something that for me is very hard because this has been a part of my life. But when you look at your life and you say, I no longer exist like unto myself, I exist unto God. Every other thing you have going on is on the table to get cut. You know, everything else is something that you can push aside. And that's true of commitments, but, and I don't want to sit here and make it sound like I'm saying like, oh, so you need to cut out all the commitments so you can sit here and go on a mission trip to Africa. But what I am saying is that when you have this mentality, you try to adopt this mentality that, I mean, I know I just gave an example, but I struggle with this every single day. You try to adopt this mentality of, you know, I no longer exist unto myself which means I no longer exist unto the world, then all of a sudden what that means is that things that people induce upon you as this is what's going to make you look good, this is what's going to make you successful, this is what's going to make you happy, all of a sudden those things you recognize are no longer a part of, of anything that controls you. That's goat thinking. What I have is this freedom to be able to dive into my calling as, as much as I want to, as much as I feel God has called me to do because that's who I am. I now have a new identity. And so now the only things that matter to me are not the fact that I have a certain trajectory in my career. It doesn't matter to me that I have a certain kind of popularity in the community. It doesn't matter that I have certain things that I've, I've, I've built up that are kind of my little, my little fiefdoms, my castles and community groups and all that kind of stuff. None of that matters anymore. All that matters is Am I loving God? Am I loving people? 
If I'm doing those two things, then I am meeting everything I need to meet in order to exhibit this new identity that I have in Christ. I am trying to live the holy division that is to exist between me and the rest of the world. And that's hard. It's difficult because it means taking things that maybe we think have been supremely important in our lives and then saying, maybe I'm not entitled to that. Maybe I'm not entitled to, you know, pursuing whatever this hobby is that I want to pursue. Maybe I'm not entitled to that particular career path and trajectory that, you know, I wanted to get. You know, maybe there are certain luxuries that I have to forego. Or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe I don't have to give something up, but maybe I need to take something else on. Maybe there's something where uh, I just kind of enjoyed my sit around and do nothing time. And, you know, I need to, to do something. I need to get active because God has, has put some things right in front of me that he clearly wants me to do. Whatever that is that causes us to be divided from the rest of the world, it is something to embrace as a good thing. Not because we want to be divided from the rest of the world for the sake of division, but once again, so that we can be divided away from the things that attempt to control us. To me, what is so fascinating when we talk about this subject of being recreated in a new identity is when you look at the end of the story, and this is the part that I harped on when we gave a sermon a couple weeks ago, but I just think the way that Peter answers Christ is so fascinating here at the end of the story. So continuing on in John 6, verse 66, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. So again, these are the masses, right? These are the hordes. Christ didn't sit here and stop what he was doing so that he could keep them in his little club and all that. So he could say, look, I have the biggest, I have the biggest church in the area and all that. Like he didn't do any of that. He let him go. And then he turns around and he looks at his 12 and says, you, you don't want to leave too, do you? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. What I think is interesting here is we know some things about these disciples we know that these disciples weren't necessarily, some of them were educated, but some of them weren't. So they weren't necessarily smarter than the general public. They weren't necessarily tougher because, I mean, you know, I mean, shoot, after this, there are tons of examples of kind of what we would call cowardice that happened. Um, they weren't necessarily holier than thou at this point in time. You still got Judas in, in the crowd, <laughs> you know. Uh, there wasn't necessarily even, I, I wouldn't even necessarily say that there was an intent to be more dedicated that was here. When you look at Peter's answer, it's very clear that he's not appealing to any of these like, well, they, they just weren't on board with it, I guess, you know, but I, I'm here. I really believe in you. No, what Peter said is, Lord, to whom shall we go? In other words, it's like he couldn't even fathom that there would be another place that he could go. This was simply where he belonged. It just simply was how it is. You know, he had... In his mind in this moment, you could see that, that, that he, he was all in and he had committed to the person of Christ and he had acknowledged that he is divided from the rest of the crowd. I mean, it'd be hard not to see it when they all physically leave. But, you know, he was clearly divided from the rest of the crowd. He was following Christ. He was all in. And because he had, you know, identified himself with Christ, united in this body of Christ, it enabled him to be able to do amazing things. When you sit here and you look at what the disciples went through, especially following the, the, the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ and how, you know, nearly all of them, you know, were martyred for what they believe and all that. You look at that and you go, how is it that they could all endure such things? And I've, I've heard a lot of people give a lot of different thoughts that I think really undersell 
what Christ is calling us to do. I've heard people say that it was somehow that they were divinely enabled to be able to sustain these types of sacrifices, which I don't necessarily know if I buy that. Uh, I just, I just don't, I mean, maybe, but I don't see anything in the scriptures that says that that's what it would be. Uh, some people have said that, you know, well, it's because, you know, after seeing and experiencing everything, they kind of woke up and realized and they became basically kind of very zealous at that point in time because they had seen it. But once again, I look at that and go, I don't know if I buy that because even after they saw Jesus, you know, uh, walk on water, heal a bunch of people, uh, restore sight to the blind, uh, uh, cheat death several times and raise a guy from the dead. Peter still denied him after that. So I don't know if it's because they just saw something that caused them to become overly zealous. So the only thick conclusion I can possibly come to is the reason why these eight people were enabled to be able to so zealously pursue their faith and what they knew Christ wanted them to do is because in their minds, they looked at whatever life circumstance was in front of them and said, Lord, to whom, whom else shall we go? There's no other option. And when you have no other option, then you find a way to make it work. You know, that's what you end up saying, right? I mean, that's just kind of the human condition. When you look and you say, I find myself in a rough circumstance, and this kind of is what it is, and this is the pieces I have, you either, you know, fade away, I'll say, keep things PG, like, or you, like, you make it work. You find some way to get through it. And so when we, you combine that tendency of what humans do with the fact that you now only exist within context of who you are in Christ, it leads to people who can do amazing things. It leads to people who somehow, you know, find the, the, the courage to be able to have those conversations that are hard conversations. And it leads to people who are able to get outside of their comfort zone. It leads to people who don't think they have any more hours in the week, and somehow they, they grab the week and they shake it. More hours fall out. Uh, you know, It leads to being able to do these amazing things because you look at your life and you go, I simply can't fathom any other world than the one in which I do what God has called me to do. And so that right there is, is the goal for all of us. That right there is the application to our daily lives, is that when we want to sit here and square how we interact with the people and the situations in our lives, I think first what we have to do is, you know, fight that urge to sit here and say, well, what's going to make God happy in this situation? Because God desires mercy and not sacrifice. It's not the action per se. We need to look at our hearts. What defines us? When we approach these situations with what kind of mindset are we approaching it with? Are we approaching it with the mindset of, am I going to choose God or not choose God today? Or are we approaching it with the mindset of, <laughs> that's not even an option. I'm with God. So what am I going to do now? That's what God desires out of all of us. And that's what ultimately leads to a church that is effective, that is able to preach the hard truth, but do it in love and compassion. Not sitting here trying to arbitrarily decide, you know, uh, what, what's, what's the best way to sit here and make God look glorified or make him look good or defend him or anything like that, but to look at it and just simply say, no, my entire body, my entire person, my psyche and the things I say and the things I do are now completely and wholly defined by the fact that I am divided. I am over here to the side. I am on this narrow path that is following Christ because one day Christ will come to divide the sheep and the goats. And when that happens... I pray them with the sheep. But more importantly, in the here and now, I want God to be able to use me as effectively as he can. And the best way to do that 
is to take away all of the obstacles that the world puts in our way and to say, God, whatever you call me to do, that's what I'm going to go do. And we do that by making certain that we are completely unified in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, with so many different things in this world to distract us and to um, try to compete for our attention and our affection, we just pray that you would help us to be able to keep our eyes on you, to keep our eyes on the things that are good and that are holy. God, it can be so hard to... It can be so hard sometimes to, you know, push away everything in our past that we think is important to us and, and, and instead realize that you're the only thing that really matters. And even, even once we feel like we've, we've made a commitment time and time and time again, we just realize how, how weak we are by, by constantly getting seduced by either the temptations of the past or, um, you know, promises that the world throws at us or opportunities that we think are being presented to us. Help us to be able to see through things that are distractions to the greater good and the greater glory and the greater mission that you've called all of us to. Help us, God, as a church to be a church that that looks at everything we do and all of our actions and 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 turns them towards what what best reflects you and not what necessarily reflects best on, on us as individuals or as an organization. Help us to be a people that are unified in the things that that you've called us to do and not in the things that we want to be. Help us to be more than a cultural church. Help us to be more than a societal church. Help us to be more than a, than a fad type of church. Help us to be a church that people look at and when they see us, they see Christ first. Help us to be Christians that when they see us, they see Christ first. We pray these things in your son's precious holy name. Amen.